Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am excited to be continuing my conversation with Charles Scriven about his life and ideas. Thanks for doing this with me, Chuck. I'm glad to be part of this. So today we're doing uh, four things. We're talking about two of your Time to Start Over articles, one focusing on the importance of doctrines, doctrines that lift us up, don't weigh us down, and then specifically talking about the Sabbath. And then we're also talking about um, two parts of your institutional life, your time pastoring the Sligo Church and then your time as president of then called Columbia Union College, now called Washington Adventist University. Are you down to combine these four things together into some sort of coherent whole? I'll muster all it takes, I hope. Let's let's get going. Great. So tell me how you became a pastor at Sligo. Well, their uh, well-loved pastor and my good friend Jim Londis was leaving, and uh, there was quite a bit of worry, I'm sure, among the membership as to whether they could find someone who had as progressive and uh, open-minded a vision as Jim had. He was a super effective preacher as well. I was by no means the first choice, and even formally, let alone informally, I was uh, down the list a bit. At the time I was teaching at Walla Walla, I had just completed a Ph.D., and to be honest with you, Alex, I had not even been ordained yet to the gospel ministry because I had had kind of a circuitous uh, route in my service to the church, included years at Spectrum. I'm, I'm sorry, at Insight Magazine. I taught for a year in journalism. And uh, then I was an intern pastor for a year. Then I went to school on my own dime, actually, for a little while down in uh, Berkeley, California, at the Graduate Theological Union. Then I began a four or five year stint at Walla Walla. And then for that, after the church had made uh, some initiatives and had actually called formally at least one good friend of mine to become the senior pastor, they got, as I used to ambitiously put it, to the bottom of the kind of liberal <laughs> barrel, and there I was. So uh, I took the job. I, I was nervous about it. I loved my work at Walla Walla. I briefly said no, but in the end, I went and... Um, Actually, it was wonderful that I went. I'll just tell you a quickie story about Jim Lonis and me. We became quite close friends after both of us were at Sligo. We, of course, knew each other at that time and even before, but we became colleagues later on. We're now retired in the same community. We communicate a lot. And the one thing I've noticed about the both of us is this. We both had a fairly varied set of experiences over the course of our service to the church. But when we start talking about our lifetimes, we both come back to Sligo and to that experience as the pastor of that congregation. It was just a great experience, and it has uh, really shaped my entire vision from that point onward. It just was a, was a great experience. I never worked harder on Fridays in my life because the day after Friday is sermon day. 
but uh, it was all deeply meaningful to me. I had uh, a great congregation. I had really wonderful colleagues on the pastoral staff. We went through this and that controversy, but it was really meaningful. I had a great time. I'm a big believer in the pastorate. I'm a big believer in the role of the pastor as ideally a truth teller. And uh, it meant a lot to me to have that experience. Well, I have noticed uh, at various points where we've been at meetings that your former parishioners have come up to you and uh, enjoyed catching up with you. And, and I have even overheard them saying how much they miss having you as their pastor. Can you talk a little bit about what um, that experience meant to you specifically as you kind of engaged very directly in the life of your congregants and went through the typical, you know, ups, weddings, downs, funerals, dealing with controversies? What, what stands out to you as, as some of the important moments in that story? Well, there, there were several. I think that uh, generally, as I've already hinted at, I found the preaching to be a very meaningful part, although I began as a fairly insecure preacher. I was actually ordained in the church, and it meant a lot to me, although at my ordination service there was a slight, uh, more than slight, uh, problem, and that is that uh, my colleague Jan Daffern was on the platform. She... Uh, was fully comfortable there, I think, until at the point when they invited all the elders in the congregation to come up and lay their hands on me. And it was a very, very awkward moment because she ended up, given the time when this was happening, in a kind of isolated position in her chair while 30 or 40 preachers were all on their knees. Oh. And uh, that was memorable right there. And I made a remark about it. I remember as soon as I got up for some brief response remarks, and that was one of the few times I think that the congregation applauded me for something. They they all felt as though this had been an awkward moment. And it's one of those moments that underscores the importance of finally coming around to embrace a righteousness on that subject, uh, on the subject of equality for women in ministry. I enjoyed the administrative part, which in a way took me by surprise, but putting together a team of people working with them in uh, weekly meetings and uh, trying to figure out how best to uh, deploy one another in a way that would bring about uh, some good for the congregation. I loved that, actually. And I think my colleagues might look, at, look back and say that I was maybe fairly good at that. They might say I was okay as a preacher. I had fairly decent substance, but I didn't have an actor's voice, and I was starting out as a complete new, uh, novice, and it, I had to grow into it, and I did some growing, that's for sure. But uh, I really enjoyed that part of it. I had, uh, at, uh, while I was there, I served at least some of the time as the chair of the board, and uh, that was for me fun, although we finally came around to having a layperson as the chair while I was there, but it was a very intriguing thing to do. I remember that uh, what struck me always as a matter of deep loss is if we lost members. I remember we lost an exceedingly prominent member fairly uh, several years into my period there, someone whose name would be immediately recognizable. And uh, this person simply wanted his uh, 
name drop from membership. And I remember it was hard for me. It's very hard for me to see any harm done to the body of Christ. People have a right to drop out. And I fully understand why some people are tempted to drop out. But I remember that it was difficult for me to deal with that reality. I wanted to keep the circle of compassion and the circle of commitment to uh, the Lordship of Christ and to the hope that we all share. I wanted that to be as strong as possible. So I found that to be challenging and difficult. But on the whole, I had a great time. Now, when it came to raising money, I don't think that was my strong suit, but I will tell you that we managed. And uh, in the Potomac Conference, that meant this is another point that Jim and I like to make. That meant that uh, we were pretty secure in our jobs. And here's why. The Sligo Church was a, a large congregation, I think around 3,200 plus, and not all of them active, of course, and certainly not every one of them in church every week. We were lucky to get 15 to 1,700 a week. But, uh, you know, we provided some one-sixth of the tithe for the entire Potomac Conference. And both of us have said to one another that, uh, a pastor who keeps his or her congregation happy and pleased participating is in a pretty secure position because administrators, no matter their theology, they're very pleased if things are working. <laughs> and if you're not divisive in a sense that destroys and you're keeping people engaged and it went pretty well, not as well as I would like, but it went pretty well while I was there. And I, found it all to be fairly meaningful. I didn't really have during that period anything like a, a major setback that sort of uh, kept me awake at night, I don't think. I, w I was there during a pretty fortunate period. I remember being a little depressed when the GC decided to move its offices from Tacoma Park all the way out to Silver Spring because I knew that would uh, make it more difficult for us to uh, attract and hold on to general conference people, all of whom I loved having against parishioners. But yeah, it was a good, it was a good period. And uh, one thing that I remember, one other thing not to go on too long, is that during that period, I did for a short while something that I wish I had done all my life. And that was actually to take seriously the idea of personal meditation every morning. I had a habit for a period, I'm afraid it was a short period, of actually meditating on a verse of scripture in the mornings and not spending a lot of time, but enough time to write a prayer in which I express my hopes and fears and needs for the day. That was something that happened. And the other thing, one other thing I get excited about being a pastor is that uh, I had been trained as a systematic theologian. I took a lot of philosophy courses in the University of California philosophy department. I didn't take graduate level work in scripture proper the way friends like John Brunt or Alden Thompson had done. But I fell in love with commentaries mm. while I was a pastor. And I, uh, I still love commentaries. I love anything that helps me to see into uh, the Holy Writ. It just was exciting. Well, that's a great uh, transition to uh, talking about the first article that I want to weave into our conversation in which you ask some questions about the way that uh, doctrine functions in the life of an Adventist. And you ask this question, are the premises we embrace true and do they support discipleship? 
And because we're talking about your very practical life leading an Adventist congregation, can you kind of talk about the way that you uh, incorporated doctrine, thought about doctrine, saw doctrine both be a stumbling block to some parishioners or in some ways maybe create a helpful structure for um, the people that you were ministering to? Well, let me say this. I had been preceded at Sligo by people like uh, Bill Lovelace, Dale Hanna, uh, Jim Londison. They were all open-minded people who I think succeeded in uh, presenting the parishioners of the church with the idea that you didn't have to be a highly conservative Adventist to be welcomed in the church. You had to embrace the basics. And so I don't honestly remember that there were a lot of people who felt burdened down by Adventist doctrine. They were aware, a lot of them, of the problems. We all had friends who had discussions about uh, the age of the earth or about the meaning of the doctrine of creation. We certainly had discussions about practical issues. I mean, I had uh, participants in church life who were gay, and this was at the period when uh, HIV was really going places. And uh, that was an issue that came up in private conversations but there was not any movement in the church, as far as I could tell, uh, to uh, require me to get up and be highly conservative on that point. So I think Sligo Church was a quite wonderful context in which to think about things. But all the while, I, was, I had written a book on the doctrine of the church, and all the while I was there, that basic doctrinal commitment, which I could talk about at length, but I won't hear, was uh, in the back of my mind and it was uh, stirring me. But I did take preaching to be a matter of uh, uh, confronting the sacred text, maybe one passage, maybe a longer passage, maybe more than one, and doing what I could to crack it open. And uh, so I, I, uh, I tried my best in my preaching to uh, base what I said explicitly, not just implicitly, on scripture. Yeah, you you write about um, how doctrine should function by saying, by resonating with life experience and by sustaining the existence we committed to in baptism. Uh, for a community to have beliefs like this, beliefs that help not hurt, it must invest fearlessly in intellectual self-amendment. It must acknowledge mistakes. It must cut away distractions that generate complacency or needless conflict. Yes. Why, um, why do you think that um, some Adventists have such a, a, a kind of hard time getting past a doctrine that they find intellectually um, problematic? And sometimes it causes them to leave the church? Well, I think one reason is that uh, what I sometimes call, and it's not a terribly generous adjective, but I'll use it, what I sometimes call official Adventism, is quite preoccupied with doctrinal correctness. There has been, even within our lifetimes, even within yours, you're much younger than I am, uh, several evidences of preoccupation with 
getting our doctrines not only generally right, but absolutely perfectly right. Yeah. Now, that is absurd, but it's still part of what goes on. And so we endlessly haggle over whether we enforce the 28 uh, beliefs, whether we make our teachers kind of uh, go by those beliefs down to the last jot and tittle. So I think there is in the background of Adventism this sense that correctness is important. And that almost certainly goes back in part to the 1919 Bible Conference, which occurred, as you know, at a time when fundamentalism was beginning to flourish in the United States. And we kind of drank from the uh, cup of fundamentalism. And that has made it hard for many people to. I had a friend who who at first in his life didn't want to teach in an Adventist college because he thought he couldn't do it honestly, hmm. honestly. Why? Because he knew that there were points within the 27 or 28 doctrinal beliefs when he was simply not at home, where he was not at home. And then conservative Adventists, or maybe I should say fundamentalists, to this day tend to think of the most important achievement of any Adventist, or one of the most achievements of any Adventist, is that of actually getting to understand and to hold on to the truth as if it could be reduced to some official document with the backing of uh, the church administrators. That is a problem. And that's the problem that I was trying to fight at the beginning of the series, Time to Start Over, when I mentioned several different doctrines that just don't admit of any kind of plausibility anymore. And uh, it's also what I was trying to get at in this uh, second piece that you mentioned, and uh, that is from the fact that I feel a lot of negativity about overly um, fundamentalistic readings of Adventist doctrine. It doesn't follow that doctrine's unimportant. It's very important. How is it important? Well, it's important because doctrines support what is most important, and what is most important is discipleship following Jesus, embracing the message of uh, righteousness, justice, faithfulness that was insisted upon by the prophets, the very prophets whom Jesus felt in league with, from whom he preached in Nazareth. So the point, as you know, is this. Prophets matter because prophets are the, I'm sorry, doctrines matter because doctrines correctly expressed, humbly expressed, are the necessary premises for the practice of Christian life. And Christian life matters. If Christian life matters, the undergirding premises matter, doctrines matter too. But we need to simplify them and we need to get rid of distractions and uh, find a way to express our beliefs so as to strengthen our discipleship. That's what matters. Correctness doesn't matter. The judgment day is not a day in which there are theological quizzes. <laughs> they don't happen. But it is a day in which we are asked whether or not we have been faithful to our baptism. Well, um, I, I can see that uh, you may have felt like you uh, preaching wasn't your uh, favorite thing to do, but I can tell right now that you are feeling a, a sort of pulpit spirit, and you really are passionate about helping us think about discipleship uh, as more as as really the focus of the Christian life. 
Uh, so it's nice to, to get that sense that doctrines are there to support uh, a kind of living connection with the legacy of Jesus. Let's talk about your time as president of Columbia Union College. How did you go from being a, a church administrator to uh, uh, someone involved in the, the academic community as a leader? Well, it happened because there was a need at the college. Um, at that time, the college was probably not high on any presidential aspirants list of places he or she would like to go because it had been through a period of challenge and difficulty. I was serving on the board of the college and I was on subcommittees while I was at the church where such unpleasant uh, experiences as having to think through where to make cuts was going on. It didn't ever cross my mind that I might become the college president, but um, the union president in the Columbia Union at the time, Ron Wisby, did finally one night when we were already deep into the process of trying to understand how to take our next steps at the college, he called me up and said he wanted me to consider becoming a candidate. It took me by surprise. I was very happy at the Sligo Church. I loved the discipline of a weekly sermon. I was kind of learning how to do those things. I'd been there for six or seven years by then. But uh, the need was there. It was no uh, particular victory for my sagging ego that I suddenly became a college president because I was happy where I was. And I knew that I would begin on a very challenging note because I would begin at a point when we were having to do what we sometimes refer to euphemistically as restructuring. However, Ron persisted. I said yes. And part of the reason I said yes is that I knew very well that being an administrator was something that I didn't, I didn't hate it. I mean, I'd learned I didn't hate it. I actually liked that part of my job. And there was a need. I had the academic credentials. And uh, I knew that the faculty, I was pretty sure of this, would appreciate someone with my level of uh, passion for uh, intellectual substance and my level of uh, support for people who teach. So I took the job and uh, it was a it was a challenging job, I will tell you, especially at the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about those challenges? I feel like um, so much of the of institutional life is sort of hidden behind a veil for people, uh, especially I just am returning from the Pacific Union constituency session. And, um, you know, it's very, it's sort of fraught times for Adventist education right now. And it's difficult, I think, for leaders to balance the various constituencies that they serve. How did you uh, kind of make a way, what, what were some decisions that were, uh, you know, kept you up uh, at night a little bit? I was up, I, in, in that job, I was probably up at night quite a bit. I will say this, uh, Washington Adventist University to this day is situated near, very close to one of the best and most intriguing cities in the world. Yeah. 
Now, that's the good side. That's the good news. The uh, more challenging side or the equally challenging side is that because the college was situated near one of the great cities in the world and one of the best places in the world to find uh, middle class citizens of one African pathway or other to American life, it was a highly diverse campus. And uh, the fact is that racial worries can continue to uh, uh, be a part of much of, of white America's life. I think we're making progress. I know this is a thicket. I don't want to get in too far. We're making progress, but we're a long way from redemption on that score. So it became, I knew very well that it would be, um, it would be a recruitment issue that I had uh, less than 50% of the students were white. But what we tried to do is this. We did a couple of things. One is we tried to say they just don't have a Capitol building next door at any other campus you can mention. We've got to embrace the city. And that was one thing that we did. Um, another thing that mattered was that while I was there, the New England Youth Ensemble under Virginia Jean Rittenhouse, and she was nothing if not amazing as a talent yeah. and amazing as a recruiter. They ended up relocating at, uh, at Columbia Union College. And uh, that turned out to be a very, very helpful fact about the first year or two of my session there because it drew a lot of good students. It uh, enhanced the life of the college. I still remember how really good members of the orchestra would play in chapel. We had a very diverse group of students in chapel, and they would all just light up and applaud when some violinist got up there and really made a splash in the course of a special music. So you know what? That was big. Mm. We had that. We had a good athletic program, and we continued to have good students. Now, I did have this challenge, I'll tell you, then that is that uh, many, many administ administrators are familiar with this. The faculty was often worried that the athletic program was just taking money away from academic programs. And I sympathize with that. I'm fundamentally committed to high quality academic programs. But at the same time, the program did provide things to do for students and it provided students. Yeah. So that was a source of controversy. I didn't lose too much sleep over it, but I was aware that this is one of the respects in which administrative life would be challenging at the college. You know, I was a, a high school student academy at the time, and I remember uh, the talk among my teenage friends that, uh, you know, if you were really interested in baseball or basketball, Columbia Union College had kind of the best athletic program. So it was it was a. Yeah. Uh, well, at the, at the time, at the time, it clearly was the best. I have no doubt about, about that. I used to watch, I remember watching games. Not, now, no one from Columbia Union fit this category, but I watched basketball games in the Columbia Union College gym, which involved people who later appeared in the NBA. Wow. Now, it wasn't all the time, by any means, but we had, uh, it was a high level. And I, when I attended the games, I used to be amazed. I mean, the speed. And of course, because it's a small school, I always had a front row seat. These people were terrific. It was just the best basketball I'd ever seen. Hmm, that's fun. Well, let's talk about um, 
the Sabbath in the context of the way that you um, explore it in your article. And let's move that into the kind of institutional questions that you had to explore about identity and separation of church and state that you encountered as the college president. So let's talk first about the way that you frame up this, uh, again, time to start over, a way of, of rethinking what the Sabbath means. And in this, you say that in the case, uh, as it is perhaps always the case for religious communities, we are fragile, imperiled from within and without. Yet we are drawn together, many of us, grateful for purpose and hope, glad for the lifelong friendships and shared mission that Adventism seems to offer. And then you talk about uh, taking up uh, the Sabbath here, pertaining specifically to its uh, defining distinctiveness for the Adventist community. What about the Sabbath do you want to not only keep but emphasize? Okay, what I want to, well, first of all, I want to keep the Sabbath because there is no evidence whatever in the New Testament of sheer outright hostility to the Sabbath. Now, there is evidence of uh, opening up of the church to people of Gentile background, but in that regard, the issue is always the issue of circumcision. And uh, it just doesn't come up in any context, and in no context is the Sabbath treated as if it is something we should uh, not insist upon or not even embrace because uh, it's a burden. The Sabbath was never thought of as a burden in the New Testament. So that's one thing. The other thing about the Sabbath is that if we read both Testaments in a fresh way, it will become clear to us that the Sabbath is, for one thing, a gift of grace. It's rest. The Sabbath is, uh, in, is created before any human being does a single stitch of the work of taking care of the garden. That rest day, that celebration with, with our creator is invented from day one. And in the context, by the way, of that creation story, it makes great sense because other religious communities in Babylon and other places, they had this theme of rest in their traditions, but it was always rest for the gods and human beings were created to do slave labor. That's not true in the Bible. So we are confronted here with a tremendous gift, a gift that's easier to appreciate as we get older and have responsibilities that wear us out. Now, the second thing I wanna mention about the Sabbath is that this gift of grace invites a totally pertinent response. And that pertinent response is that we keep in mind that the world was created. It's not mere happenstance. It's not just something that came along. It was made, so we believe as Christians, by a God who thinks of us as co-partners, co-workers in the divine project of creating a world in which the worship of God comes to final fruition and we all enjoy peace together. And the second thing I want to emphasize is that uh, the Sabbath invites an ethical response. And that response is a response to the fact that God delivered the children of Egypt from slavery. That is to say, God 
delivered them from forced labor, from injustice. The Sabbath is a reminder of that. One context where the Sabbath gets several verses of play in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is Isaiah 58 toward the end. But if you read the entire chapter, Isaiah 58, you will see that the theme from start to finish is morally responsible commitment to justice and the well-being of the disadvantaged. So here it is, the Sabbath, a gift of grace, a call to moral action. Now, the other thing that I like to say, Alex, is that um, the Sabbath is not only a gift of grace, not only a call to uh, moral action, but it's also a means by which we today can restore a sense of connection with the Jewish background of Christian existence. Yes. The entire church forgot about or resisted noticing Romans 11, where Paul makes it clear that the covenant with Israel never ends and that Israel and the Jewish experience is the root that supports our experience as Christians and that we should stand in awe of the Jews. Christianity, as soon as the second generation and say Justin Martyr's great work, Dialogue with Trifo, who was a Jew, it was condescending toward the Jews already in the second century. Eventually, you got this demonic doctrine of supersession, namely the Christian belief that all of Israel is no longer even relevant. They've been displaced. We're the true Israel. All of that contributed to a long, long history of persecution of the Jews, a history that probably came to its most atrocious climax in the last century in uh, Nazi Germany. We can restore the connection. Now, my point, by the way, here, Alex, is not that we Adventists should become Jews. I think it would be a mistake to think that it's our business to celebrate the Passover. It's our business to celebrate the Sabbath because by the account of the Jews recorded in the Hebrew Bible, the Sabbath was invented and given to us as a gift way before there were any Jews. And by the account of the prophets, the Sabbath is an experience which Gentiles who finally come to the mountain of the Lord to experience what Israel is already experiencing will themselves join in Sabbath experience. And then you get Jesus coming along, pronouncing that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Jesus' day. The Sabbath, according to Mark, is literally the Lord's day. It's a, give, it's a wonderful institution, and it's a great part of the Adventist heritage. I love how you work through those uh, points for uh, keeping the Sabbath uh, in the life of the church. And um, as I was reading your article, I found a resonance with my recent reading of former American Academy of Religion uh, President David Gushy, the evangelical um, ethicist who recently wrote uh, a book called After Evangelicalism, The Path to a New Christianity. And one of the points that he makes about Christianity, a Christianity that he's highly uh, critical of, is that Christianity gets into trouble when it tries to 
get rid of its Jewishness, its Jewish history. And one of the points that he makes, he holds up the Holocaust as a key uh, ethical mirror that you have to, any doctrine has to be able to hold up in the face of that uh, inhumanity and horror. And as I was reading him, I thought about the ways that Adventism can rely on the Sabbath to fight off uh, a lot of the anti-justice and let's even say the um, white racism that happens in Christianity. So often the, the worst forms of Christianity parallel the worst forms of racism when there is an attempt to form separation between some sort of white culture and let's say Middle Eastern culture or other culture. And so the Sabbath, I think, perhaps could be a place where Adventists can have really productive conversations with justice-seeking Christians who are trying to find, especially evangelicals, who are trying to find a way forward for a faith that's really been discredited by its uh, uh, connection to so many scandals in the last few decades. So um, I wanted to talk to you about this point you make about separation. Uh, you say conventional Adventist teaching on the Sabbath evokes proud separation from other Christians. And this idea of, of separation is so essential to our own doctrine, that sort of traditional doctrine of the Sabbath, good Christians go worship God on Sabbath, bad Christians, especially at the end of times, worship God on Sunday. And this has been a way for Adventists to sort of define who they are. But it also, uh, I want to kind of explore the idea of the way that we have um, looked at the Sabbath as a symbol for protecting us on questions of separation of church and state. So you have some sort of traditional Adventist ideas, and then you might even think of the separation of church and state as one of those traditional Adventist beliefs that are embraced by uh, Adventists of, of all stripes. And you've actually been in the middle of some of these debates. Tell me about how you've uh, worked through those. Well, I think you're probably referring to the fact that while I was at CUC, we sued the state of Maryland for money that Maryland set aside to assist uh, private colleges in the state of Maryland. Yeah. And uh, curiously, by the way, the whole program was had the name the Father Selinger program, emphasis on Father Selinger, because there were several Catholic schools that uh, were part of this. We sued, we pursued the suit. Uh, we had uh, pro bono assistance from one of the best lawyers in Washington, D.C. And uh, although we didn't fully end the process until my work as president had ended, we did win the suit and we did get the money. And in the course of it, of course, I had to speak to uh, various entities, including my church board, about how I understood the idea of the separation of church and state. And um, 
I do understand it very, I do take it very seriously. Uh, as you know, I take very seriously the radical reformation, the Anabaptist refusal to simply fall into line with whoever the current uh, rulers of the various countries are. Uh, arguably, uh, the separation of church and state is in part a reflection of the influence of those radical Christians. But the separation of state does not entail that we must cave into the idea that when the federal government or any government is handing out money to all kinds of institutions, both public and private, that we can't receive part of it unless in receiving part of it, we deeply compromise who we are. And at CUC, it was clear to me that uh, we did not and did not have to compromise who we are. And it just felt like a deep injustice for the state of Maryland to uh, give money to the competing private schools, several of which were Catholic, without sharing that money with us. And uh, it's a complicated argument that our attorneys made, but let's just say that uh, I was convinced by their argument and that in the end, the school got, and I think still receives annually, uh, a small subsidy. I'm sure it's over a million dollars, maybe two by now, uh, from the state of Maryland. But um, the idea that the church should not kowtow to the state, align itself uncritically with uh, any particular government, that is an insight that is a strength in Adventism. We ought to continue to fight for religious liberty, and uh, I'm behind it 100%. I don't think we can be faithful Christians unless we affirm the value of religious liberty. Let's talk about another moment in that history that you were a part of. I just was recently at the Pacific Union Conference constituency session in which Sandra Roberts became the first woman to be an ordained executive secretary of a union in the Adventist church. And you were part of an early moment in this story there in 1995 at the Sligo Church when Norma Osborne, Penny Shell, and Kendra Holoviak, now Kendra Holoviak Valentine, were all ordained. What was that like? Well, at one swoop on a particular Sabbath afternoon, uh, this pastor of the Sligo Church, who at the time was Rudy Torres, uh, and at the time I was the president of the college, I was a player in that service, but a bit player. The credit goes to these other people. We talked about these things together, and uh, we ended up ordaining three women to the Adventist ministry, even though it was explicitly in contradiction of official church policy. And uh, it was a moment when the Sligo community, I think, shone uh, in a way that I still consider to be very, very admirable. We were protesting. Uh, we knew that we were breaking some institutional rules. But at that particular time, which has to be back in the uh, later 80s, I think, or unless it was in around in 1990. Yeah, 1990. The world was still getting used to the idea of women asserting themselves um, as potentially leaders of churches. And that service was mentioned in a New York Times column the very day it happened. 
And the day after it happened, the Washington Times, not the Post, published a front page above the fold photograph of these three women being blessed in the course of that ordination. And uh, I felt as though it was a high moment. I'm very aware that uh, any kind of uh, profound social change in major institutions usually is motivated from the bottom up. You cannot wait for administrators. I've been an administrator and I don't like to admit this, but sometimes administrators either are not or cannot be the cutting edge. And you have to hold on to the hope that congregations, that local communities within the church will bear the torch of progress. And that's what happened at Sligo on that day in 1990 or 91. And uh, we had a very large crowd in the church for a Sabbath afternoon service. And it meant a lot, not just to the Sligo community, but to the wider community of Adventism. And uh, I had a bit part, I think I read, the, or I even wrote and read a kind of a charge to the people who were ordained. And it meant so much to, so much to me. I felt very, very grateful to have been part of what uh, Rudy Torres uh, led out in doing there. And he did, I remember this very well, preach a really superb ordination sermon that day. It was, it was wonderful. Hmm. Well, it's been great talking with you, and I'm looking forward to part three as we explore uh, some more of your ideas and your life. Thanks so much for the way that you are rethinking um, both Adventism as a theological project and also as a way of life. Well, I'm very happy to be part of the conversation. Thank you a lot, Alex. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move, and the poor, and the meek, and the hungry, and the lonely 